Every year on Easter Sunday, the church all over the world holds the historical event of Jesus' resurrection up to the light of God's holy word to show off the wonder and the splendor of God's glory and grace in the gospel of his dear son. Jesus is alive. His tomb is empty. He is risen. And we need never worry about running out of texts to preach on this glorious, glorious topic. The whole storyline of the Bible is based on Jesus' death and resurrection for sin, with all of its implications for this world and the world to come. However, just last month, uh, we spent three consecutive Sundays studying 1 Corinthians 15, which is the resurrection text of the New Testament. So for Easter Sunday 2022, I want to take a slightly different approach. Continuing on in our John series, we're going to consider Jesus' resurrection from the predictive side of Scripture, the typological side, Jesus' resurrection before the fact. We read in John chapter 2, verse 18, The Jews then responded to him, What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? And what the religious leaders are demanding of Jesus is, What authority do you have, Jesus, to handle the temple structures that now exist with such wanton disregard for tradition and for civil law? Driving out the sacrificial animals for Passover with a whip? Overturning the tables of the money changers? Good grief. What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all of this? And Jesus responds in verse 19. Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. Verse 21. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. In other words, Jesus rests some measure of his authority on his death and resurrection. A death and resurrection that in chapter 2 has yet to occur. In effect, Jesus is telling the religious leaders, the ultimate authority vested in me is demonstrated by my empty tomb. That's our Easter text. But none of this occurs in literary isolation. Uh, The first event we read of in chapter 2 is connected is Jesus changing the water into wine. And actually, John doesn't call it uh, an event. Look at verse 11. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. And his disciples believed in him. So this is how chapter 2 of John's gospel begins. We, we, we have chapter 1 with its astounding prologue. And then we have the witness of John the Baptist. And then Jesus collects his first disciples. And now this. But of all the miracles Jesus could have performed for his first ever, why turn water into wine? Is there some biblical significance in that? Perhaps there isn't any biblical significance in that. Perhaps this catering emergency took Jesus by surprise, right? His mom was in a bit of a pickle, and so Jesus just stepped in, and he lent a hand without pausing, without, without putting too much thought 
into uh, this miracle signifying much of anything, right? Sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. And perhaps Jesus wasn't far enough along in his public ministry to have an honest-to-goodness exorcism under his belt yet, so turning the water into wine became his first miracle ever by default. Is that what this is? Absolutely not. This miracle is incredibly significant. It's deliberate. It speaks. It teaches. Verse 11, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. And later, John insists that his own purpose in recording these signs is to convince people that the Messiah, the Son of God, is Jesus. Chapter 20, verse 30. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written, including this first sign of turning water into wine at Cana, that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So whatever this miracle portends, we won't be too far wrong in our understanding if we seek to discover how it breeds faith in Jesus. So let's dive in. The wedding at Cana and clearing the temple. Verse 1 of John chapter 2. On the third day, that is three days from the exchange between Jesus and Nathanael at the end of chapter 1, and it actually, it's only in chapter 1 and here where John provides a careful record of a sequence of days. And what's the grand total of days? One week, seven days. One week of activity culminating in the miracle of new wine on the seventh day. An echo of creation week, apparently. John's already drawn attention to creation in his prologue. The good news John proclaims in, in this gospel reflects a new creation that's already been stated. And now the miracle of water into wine takes place on the seventh day. It takes place on the Sabbath. That's significant <coughs> because Jesus' performance of redemptive work on the Sabbath later in this gospel, chapter 5, chapter 7, chapter 9, is given the most suggestive theological treatment in the whole New Testament apart from Hebrews chapter 4. This is a major, major theme of the Gospel of John. So, on the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. That's about nine miles north of Nazareth. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding, which suggests the wedding was uh, for a relative or a close family friend. And it's not impossible that Mary had some responsibility for the organization of the catering, Hence, her attempt to deal with this wine shortage. Verse 3, when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. One of the things I trust we all love about Toronto churches like New City is that we're not just one homogeneous culture. Uh, our families are from all over the world. And one of the places where we really see some cultural difference is at a wedding. A traditional Canadian wedding lasts about 12 hours, uh, including the reception. So 12 p.m. to 12 a.m. is typical 
if you're one of the diehards who dances the night away, right? And customarily, the financial responsibility lays with the bride's family. A traditional Hindu wedding is three days. And typically, the wedding is paid for by the couple and their parents equally. A wedding celebration in Jesus' culture could last as long as a week for a virgin, three days for a remarrying widow, and the financial responsibility always lay with the groom. But Jesus' culture is a shame culture, and to run out of food or drink at a wedding would be a dreadful embarrassment. It would even lay the groom open to a lawsuit from the aggrieved relatives of the bride. Can you imagine that? Just starting off your marriage (laughs) with a lawsuit from the in-laws. One of the pastoral internships I did back in the day was at a very conservative Baptist church here in Toronto. And part of my duties uh, included teaching the adult Sunday school class over the summer. I was 28 years old at the time. And one Sunday morning, I was preaching this passage, and I received a great deal of flack from an older sister in Christ who couldn't countenance the notion that Jesus either drank or created real wine. It was grape juice, obviously. But that idea is just silly. Uh, It's wine. I, I didn't say that to her in that way at the time, but I'm saying it now. That idea is just silly. Uh, In verse 10, the head steward expects that at this point in the celebration, some of the guests would have had too much to drink, and the Greek verb refers to inebriation. On the other hand, wine in the ancient world was diluted with water, between one-third and one-tenth of its fermented strength. Undiluted wine, like the wine we buy today at the LCBO, that was viewed as strong drink and earned much more disapprobation. But here's the real question. What was Mary expecting of Jesus when she voiced her complaint? Was she merely passing along the sad news without any explanation at all? Isn't it a pity, son? They're all out of wine. We're going to have to drink water now. I mean, that's, that's the death sentence at any wedding. <laughs> well, that can't be right, because in verse 5, Mary's instructions to the servants prove that she's actually expecting something from Jesus. Was Mary anticipating a miracle? How could she be? Uh, At this point, Jesus has never performed a single miracle in his life. This section ends by insisting this is the first of Jesus' miracles. Verse 11. So what was Mary expecting from her son? I don't think she was expecting him to perform a miracle. I think it's more likely she turned to Jesus because she had learned to rely upon his resourcefulness. The traditions that make Mary a widow at this period are very plausible. Uh, Joseph never appears again after the episode in the temple in Luke chapter 2 when he's 12 years old. We never hear from him again. And Jesus himself was known not only as the carpenter's son in Matthew 13, 55, but as the carpenter in Mark 6, 3. So if you went to Nazareth and asked for the carpenter, Jesus was your man, not Joseph. So apparently up to this point, the family fortunes had depended on Jesus' manual labor. And like any widow, Mary had, le- had leaned hard on her firstborn son and, and how easy that must have been if your firstborn son is Jesus. But Jesus' response to Mary is enigmatic. Verse 4, Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. 
Now, this form of address, uh, woman, gune, uh, though it's courteous enough, it's not the form of address preferred by a son addressing his much-loved mother. It's not an endearing term. And when Jesus addresses Mary from his cross, he uses the same expression, doesn't he? Uh, Chapter 19, verse 26. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son. English equivalents for this word are hard to come by. Uh, Woman is too uh, distant in English. And it's possibly too condescending. If a man today in our culture were to say, woman, why do you involve me? You know, it smacks of male chauvinism, right? But dear woman is too sentimental, and some translations go that way. Uh, But the expression heard in the southern United States, ma'am, has it almost exactly. Except that well-brought-up children in the south address their mothers with that term. Uh, You done with your food, honey? Yes, ma'am. And that's precisely how this term does not function on Jesus' lips. So, verse 4. Ma'am, why do you involve me? The tone isn't rude, but it's certainly abrupt. And at the very least, the expression is a measured rebuke. Don Carson writes this. We must not avoid the conclusion that Jesus, by rebuking his mother, however courteously declares at the beginning of his ministry his utter freedom from any kind of human advice, agenda, or manipulation. He has now embarked on his ministry. He has now embarked upon the purpose of his coming into the world. His only lodestar, that's a star that's used to guide the course of a ship, his only lodestar is his heavenly Father's will. We see that over and over again in John's Gospel. But this change now, at the age of 30, must have been extremely difficult for Mary. Can you imagine? Uh, She's his mother. She'd born him, nursed him, taught him to speak, watched him fall over as he learned to walk, and apparently had also come to rely on Jesus as the family provider. But now, at 30, Jesus has entered into his purpose for coming into the world, which means Everything, even family ties, must be subordinated to his divine mission. Mary could no longer view Jesus as other mothers viewed their sons. She could no longer be allowed the prerogatives of motherhood. But that's not callousness on Jesus' part. It's necessary. Just like every other person in the world, Mary must come to Jesus as the promised Messiah. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Her sin. Her Savior. She mustn't dare presume to approach Jesus on some kind of like insider's track. And that applies to Jesus' half-brothers as well. But for no one could this lesson have been more difficult than for Mary. And perhaps this is part of the, uh, the sword Simeon said would pierce her own soul in Luke chapter 2.35. But here's the thing. What reason does Jesus give for the distance 
he maintains between his mother and himself. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. That is the hour of his glorification. This, this term, hour, comes up over and over again. The hour of his glorification, the appointed time for Jesus' death, resurrection, and exaltation. The cross. Now, of course, Mary has no idea what he's talking about. Uh, but this captures the reader's interest. This is only chapter 2, right? So we, the reader starts asking questions. What does this hour mean? What, what, what does Jesus... What's he talking about? When, when does this hour come? It just kind of stays in our brain. We think about it. And by whetting the reader's curiosity, John is encouraging a more thoughtful reading of his book. And it, again, he expects us to read his gospel of Jesus Christ more than once. So we pick it up again later on. <clears throat> Jesus' mother shakes off her son's gentle rebuke, and she exemplifies the best kind of persevering faith. She, uh, she still doesn't know what Jesus is going to do, but she's committed the matter to him and trusts him. Verse 5, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, verse 6, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. So maybe a 150 gallons altogether. And these six water jars are made of stone because stone, being more impervious than earthenware, uh, doesn't contract uncleanness. It's more suitable for ceremonial washing. Bear in mind, this is a Jewish wedding. And in the context of a wedding feast, there would be the ritual washing of certain utensils as well as the guests' hands. But as we'll see, this story is representative of the broader question of the place of all Jewish ceremonial washings, of the old covenant law altogether. And the purpose of these stone jars provides a clue to one of the meanings of the story. So keep what I'm about to say in your back pocket as we read the rest of the text, all right? The water represents the old order of Jewish law and custom, which Jesus, the Messiah, replaces with something better. With the first miracle he ever performs, his first sign, Jesus sets up nothing less than an old covenant, new covenant contrast. Something bound up directly with him, the inaugurator of the new covenant. Do you recall what John wrote in chapter 1, verse 16? In the prologue, out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. What does that mean? The next verse explains it, verse 17. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The grace and truth that came through Jesus Christ is what replaces the law covenant of Moses, a grace already given. Yet the law covenant itself is understood to be an earlier display of God's grace, right? So out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. I'm going to unpack that in a bit, but if you're confused, just bear this one thing in mind for now. The water represents the old order of Jewish law and custom, which Jesus, the Messiah, replaces with something better. Verse 7, 
Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. And that is an essential detail to this story. To the brim. Verse 8, then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. And this is where we might get thrown for a loop. Uh, The usual interpretation of these verses is that after the servants fill the six water jars to the brim, Jesus turns the water inside the six water jars into wine. Jesus then asked the servants to draw out some of the freshly made wine from the water jars and take it over to the master of the banquet to sample. I don't think that's right. I mean, I've I've heard that story a thousand times. I don't think that's right. Uh, I don't think that's what happened. But that understanding of events impacts how we interpret the significance of Jesus' first miracle. So we've got to do hard. We've got to try hard to get this right. Uh, If that were correct, all right, the sheer quantity of water turned into wine, 150 gallons worth, becomes symbolic of the lavish provision of the new age Jesus inaugurates. I don't think that's right. A number of commentators have pointed out that the verb draw in verse 8 is used for drawing water from a well. Uh, That's how John uses it in chapter 4, verse 7, and chapter 4, verse 15. 4, 7. When a Samaritan woman came to the well to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? 4, 15. Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to this well to draw water. In other words, to use this verb consistently, properly, it would mean after the water jars had been filled to the brim, the servants then went to a well, drew water from that well, and that well water was the source of the water that Jesus turned into wine. If that's correct, it changes everything because it means the water Jesus turns into wine isn't water from the stone jars used by Jews for ceremonial washing. The jars do nothing. They just stand off to the side, filled to the brim, preaching a silent sermon. And the word now in verse 8 might be taken to support this view. Up to this time, the servants had drawn water to fill the vessels used for ceremonial washing. Now they are to draw for the feast that symbolizes the Messianic banquet. That day when the Messiah's people would sit with their king at his table and feast and celebrate his victory and his rule. What the Apostle John calls the wedding supper of the Lamb in the book of Revelation a marriage between Jesus and his bride, the church. So do you see, even the occasion of Jesus' first miracle is deliberate. It's important. It's a wedding. And filling jars with such large capacity to the brim then indicates that the time for ceremonial purification is completely fulfilled. But this new order, symbolized by the wine, could not be drawn from jars so intimately connected with merely ceremonial purification. So let's just read John's account through in one shot and then go to Mark's gospel for an explanatory parable that fills everything out. Look at verse 6. Nearby stood six stone stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews 
for ceremonial washing. Like he draws our attention to it. Each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw. And the words sum out are not in the Greek text. Now draw from a well, that would be understood, and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water from the well knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you save the best till now. And John's point, of course, is that the wine Jesus provides is unqualifiedly superior, and as must everything be that is tied to the new messianic age that Jesus is introducing. But it's not all wine, wine, wine. Those filled to the brim stone jars are a big, big part of this. They, they preach. And what do they proclaim? Turn to Mark chapter 2. Verse 21, this is on page 1003, if you're using our church Bibles. No one sews a patch, this is verse 21 of Mark 2, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. What Jesus is telling us in these two parables is that his presence, his coming, is a, is a last times event, an eschatological event that changes absolutely everything. Jesus is going to inaugurate a new covenant, and it would be utterly inappropriate to graft the new onto the old as if the old were like the supporting structure in precisely the same ways it would be inappropriate to repair a large tear in an old garment with a new unshrunk cloth or use an old and brittle wineskin to contain new still fermenting wine uh, when the gases will explode the skin the old does not support the new. It points to it, it prepares it for it, and then gives way to it. Jesus did not come simply to patch up an old system. Jesus is not a reformer of the old ways. He is the one who will utterly transform those ways. The time has come the time has been fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come near in the person and the ministry of Jesus Christ. So filling jars with such large capacity to the very brim indicates that the time for ceremonial purification has been fulfilled completely. The new order, symbolized by the wine, could not be drawn from jars so intimately connected with merely ceremonial purification. It's time for the shadow to give way to the substance. Verse 11. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. And his disciples believed in him. It's a big, big deal. 
Beloved, Jesus' miracles are never simply naked displays of power. They aren't conjuring tricks to impress the masses. They are signs, significant displays of power that point beyond themselves to the deeper realities that can be perceived only with the eyes of faith. And by this first sign, Jesus revealed his glory. The glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Chapter 1, verse 14. Of course, his glory would be revealed in greatest measure in the cross, his resurrection, his exaltation. But every step along the course of his ministry was a foreshadowing of that ultimate, ultimate glory. But notice, Jesus' glory wasn't visible to all who witnessed the miracle. This is so important to understand. John doesn't want us to identify the glory with the miraculous display. The servants, they saw the sign, but not the glory. But the disciples, by faith, perceived Jesus' glory behind the sign, and they put their faith in him. Again, this is linked to John's purpose statement, the reason why he wrote this gospel in the first place. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Verse 12. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days. And now we come to our second point. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And what does our Lord find when he arrives in the capital city? Verse 14, in the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. And these animals, of course, they're all used in the sacrificial worship of the temple. Uh, if you were a Jew who lived in Spain, you may only be able to come to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover once in your lifetime, and it would be very inconvenient to bring a lamb with you all the way from Spain. It was just easier to buy a sacrificial animal in the capital. And worshipers used to buy sacrificial animals across the Kidron Valley uh, on the Mount of Olives. But now the service is being offered in the temple courts. Specifically, in the court of the Gentiles. The outermost court of the temple. Gentiles were kept separate from Jews. That's the way Jews wanted it, segregated. But if things got really busy, like at Passover, where you have thousands and thousands of pilgrims coming to Jerusalem, and you needed some extra room to accommodate everybody, then the court of the Gentiles could serve very nicely. I mean, who cares if you're inconveniencing the sons of Ishmael, right? As well, there was a temple tax that had to be paid. But your Spanish money may not be as pure as in its quality of silver as, as it was required, and there may be an image actually of a false god on that money. You can't bring that into the temple. So there would be money exchangers who would exchange the foreign currency for the accepted shekel, and they would charge a small fee for the service. So you can imagine what it must have been like being a Gentile trying to pray to God during Passover 
in the court of the Gentiles. You're basically standing in the middle of a Mideastern bazaar, right? My friend, look at these lambs. No blemishes whatsoever. I'll give you the best deal in town. The prices at this stall, they're always fair. I take only a very small commission for exchanging your money. Jesus sees all of this, and he is furious. He's filled with righteous anger. As the text says in verse 17, zeal for his father's house is consuming him. Verse 15, so he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. I'm sure some of you have found yourselves in contexts where missionaries or or perhaps Christian musicians visit uh, your local church to raise support and sell various items, uh, their DVDs, their books, but but never in the church sanctuary uh, because they believe or the church leaders believe that it would be a violation of John chapter 2. That's a misunderstanding of this text. And it's rooted in a salvation historical misunderstanding. Uh, the building where a local church meets, 918 Bathurst, or any other building, is not God's house. This room that we're in right now, this is not a holy sanctuary. I'm not a priest. The idea of holy real estate, that passed away the moment... The veil in the temple was torn in two when Jesus died. So if we were to sell books or Christian DVDs at the back of the room, that that wouldn't be interfering with the function of this facility, would it? And and these merchants in John chapter 2, they're actually providing an essential service. Uh, There needs to be animal sacrifice for Passover. But Jesus is outraged because they shouldn't be in the temple area at all. The temple serves a unique function. It's not a market. It's God's house. God lives in the Holy of Holies. That's his, that's his earthly throne room. God dwells there. And, and Jesus' zeal in clearing the temple testifies to his concern for pure worship. When Jesus makes a whip out of cords and he, he, he pours out the money changers' coins, he overturns their tables, that zeal testifies to Jesus' concern for a right relationship with God at the place supremely designated by God to serve as the focal point of the relationship between God and human beings. This is the only place on earth where God and his people meet. But these people aren't giving any thought to right and pure worship. And that lack of concern attracts Jesus' opposition. Stop turning my father's house into a market. What can we learn from this episode in the city? It's so Jewish. It's so law of Moses-y, isn't it? Uh, How does a Christian apply this in the year 2022 in Toronto? We learn this. 
the worship of God must not be destroyed by outward ritual and forms. Think about it. Everything the Jews are doing here in this text is formally correct. The purity of the silver, they've got the unblemished sheep, but the whole thing has been debased. They got the details right, but in the process, God has been forgotten. Think of what Jesus commands in Matthew 5, 23 to 24. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Yes, this person has come to perform a religious duty. In this case, they're offering a sacrifice at the temple altar, but they've offended their brother or sister. And Jesus insists it's far more important that they be reconciled to the other Christian than discharge their religious duty. Because our worship, our worship is just all pretense and sham if we've behaved so poorly that our brother or sister in Christ has something against us. It's more important to be cleared of the offense than to show up for Sunday worship at the regular hour and sing songs to one another with tears coursing down our cheeks, praying with the tongues of angels, and taking the Lord's Supper together. That's just rank hypocrisy. The worship of God must not be destroyed by outward ritual and forms. Forget the worship service. First, be reconciled to your brother. First, be reconciled to your sister. Only then worship God. People love to substitute ceremony for integrity, purity, and love. And Jesus won't have it. Verse 18, the Jews, that is the Jewish leaders, then responded to him. What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? And these men are perfectly within their rights to ask this question. They have the authority, they have the obligation to ask where Jesus gets his authority. I mean, they're, they're the religious leaders of the nation. Where does Jesus, where does this man get, the, get his authority to overturn tables, empty money containers, fashion whips at accords, and drive out the sheep and oxen that's going to be used in sacrifice? This is serious, serious stuff. Jesus is interfering with the ability of God's covenant people to celebrate Passover. But notice... They, they've sidestepped the issue, right? Get these out of here, Jesus says. Stop turning my father's house into a market. That's the issue. And, and they're not dealing with the substance of his accusation. The issue of whether what Jesus has criticized in their behavior is a just criticism. They seem actually to kind of acquiesce that he may have a valid point, but they're saying, that's not for you to tell us, bub. These men are more interested in their power than in doing what's right. They want to preserve their religious and political influence. So instead of repenting and getting the people, people's worship of God back on track, they instead demand of Jesus a sign to prove to them that he has God-sanctioned authority to criticize their practice. They're saying, authenticate yourself to us. What sign can you do to prove your authority to do all of this? And the answer Jesus gives them is shocking. 
Verse 19. Destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. Destroy the temple. Destroy the temple for three days or one minute. It doesn't matter. This is God's throne room. This is where sacrifice is made for sin. How can Jesus talk this way? These religious leaders don't have a clue what Jesus is talking about. And at this point, neither do his disciples. We read in verse 22 that the turning point in their understanding is the combination of Jesus' resurrection from the grave and a fresh grasp and belief in the scriptures. But at this point, they're absolutely mystified. Verse 19, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. In other words, in the first place, Jesus himself is the ultimate meeting place between God and his people. That's what the temple was. Under the terms of the old covenant, the temple was the meeting place where God met with his covenant people. So if Jesus now claims to be that temple, then he's claiming to be the ultimate meeting place between God and his people. It's an astonishing claim for a man to make. It's, it's, a, it's as if he's saying, if rebels are going to be reconciled to the God who created them and to whom they stand accountable, then they must come to him by means of the temple God has ordained, and I am the temple. Friends, suppose I stood up here today and said, everything you've ever heard about where to meet God in the prayer closet, around the Lord's table, in the meeting of the church, or if you're a Jew, in the synagogue or in the temple. Forget all that. You meet with God simply because of me. If you know me, you know God. A person who says such a thing should either be admitted to a, a mental hospital or worshipped. Jesus is saying... If you read the Old Testament correctly, if you understand how the parts fit together, if you see how the pieces cohere, what you will discover is that the pieces point again and again in one direction, to me. In short, Jesus presents himself as the key holding the whole Bible together. Jesus himself is the ultimate meeting place between God and his people, there is no other temple. There is no other sacrifice that will do. He is it. Look at point B in your bulletin. In particular, it's Jesus' death and resurrection that establish him as the ultimate meeting point between God and his people. What Jesus says is, destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. Not, I am the temple. He says, destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. Already, in chapter 1, verse 14, in the prologue, the Apostle John has used tabernacle language of Jesus, right? The word became flesh and tabernacled for a while among us. He tented for a while among us. So we've already had a, a preliminary announcement of these things. Jesus himself is the tabernacle. Jesus himself is the temple. He's the place where you really do meet with God. Now we go one step further. 
not only in his incarnation, in who he is as the God-man, is Jesus this temple where you meet God, but in particular, you meet with God in this temple on account of its destruction and resurrection. Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. In other words, the ultimate meeting place with God doesn't turn just on Jesus' incarnation, but on Jesus' death on our behalf, the destruction of Jesus' body, and Jesus' resurrection again to new life. The eternal word becoming flesh on its own isn't good news, right? I mean, God and human beings would be no closer together. There would be no reconciliation if God only became a human being and nothing more. We're still guilty, defiled sinners. God's just judgment still hangs over our heads. It's the incarnation coupled with the substitutionary death and resurrection of Jesus that saves us from our sin. That's the good news. So if you find some form of the gospel, quote-unquote, where Jesus is uh, presented endlessly as a, as a model to imitate, a, a spiritual mentor, as a guru, as a teacher of, of just really great ethical systems or something, but not, finally, as a temple who is destroyed and built again, it's simply not the biblical Jesus. Point C, Jesus' death and resurrection establish his authority. Look carefully at the logic between verses 18 and verses 19. The Jewish religious leaders demand of Jesus, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all of this? Jesus answers, destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. Jesus isn't changing the subject there. He's not evading anything. He's answering their question exactly. What miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all of this? My empty tomb. Destroy this body, and I will raise it again. Friends, it's so important to understand that the disclosure of God in Jesus Christ is something that takes place in history. It's not an abstract system of thought like Buddhism. It's historical. There were witnesses, real people who wrote things down and who were willing to die for their witness. Be warned. Biblical Christianity does not put itself forward as one possible opinion amongst many. Christianity puts itself forward as the disclosure of God in real history. Divine disclosure that was witnessed. You cannot simply take it or leave it. You can run from it. You can deny it. You can slander it. But you cannot approach it like a buffet table. You know, I'll have some of this. And I'll have some of that, but oh, no, no, I don't like that, not this, not the other thing. I don't like that stuff. Christianity is the ultimate disclosure of God himself in the God-man, Christ Jesus, attested finally by his resurrection from the grave. 
and it was massively witnessed. Verse 22, after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. And John is the first to admit neither he nor any of the other disciples had any idea what was going on at this, at this point in time. They didn't understand any of it. It was only after Jesus was raised from the dead that they recalled what he had said because with Jesus' resurrection came the wonderful gift of the Holy Spirit who called the disciples' mind what Jesus had said and actually then enabled them to understand it. Then, verse 22b, then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken after the resurrection. And friends, it's my prayer this morning that there may be someone here today who has walked through those doors this morning who has not trusted in Jesus Christ, but who now, by God's enabling grace, may confess this same glorious truth. I, too, believe the scriptures and the words that Jesus spoke. I, I see it now. The temple must be destroyed and it must be raised again. The temple is Jesus' body. I believe it. I believe it is Jesus' death and resurrection that establishes him as the ultimate meeting place between God and his people. I believe that. I believe it's Jesus' death and resurrection that establishes his authority over this universe, over my life. I believe the scripture and the words Jesus has spoken.